0: So I uh, enjoy a good drama, just like almost anybody, and uh, every time that I see a drama that has to do with somebody being in prison, I I get all wiggy, uh, uncomfortable. I can't imagine personally being in jail. I remember uh, one year just for vacation, we were up in in San Francisco and went out to Alcatraz, and... uh, Mm -hmm. We were getting a tour. Brianna was, I don't know, 18 years old, and she was fascinated by that place. And so they took us down to solitary confinement and then the place they called the tomb, I think. And really it was a windowless, light, no light in there, concrete box that if you were really, really, really bad, they put you in there for a period of time. And when you closed the door, there was no light whatsoever, Uh, just concrete walls and and concrete floor with a a grate in the floor for obvious use. And uh, they used to talk about in, during the tour about you know some guy that would be in there and dick to, to maintain his san- sanity he'd take a button off his shirt and throw the button and then go try to find it and then once he found it he'd throw the button and whatever so I said to, to the guy that I was with I was smarting off. You know, it can't be that bad. You'd probably adjust and, you know, I don't know, whatever. And he said, would you like to go in? And I said, well, sure. <laughs> so he says, uh, I promise you I will not leave the door closed longer than 30 seconds. And, you know, I had a friend with me and Brandon was out there. I said, don't you let him leave that, you know, 30 seconds. He closed that door and I'm telling you within five seconds I wanted out. I was not a happy camper. I don't think I would do well in prison. But we are having a, an opportunity to study one of the prison epistles. And uh, I, uh, I have told you before that the book of Ephesians, if I could only have one book on a desert island, I want the book of Ephesians. And if I could only have one page, I want chapter one. Uh, it is an enormously exciting, powerful piece of scripture. Now, there have been lots of letters written from prison over the years, um, think about uh, Martin Luther King's great, great speech that came from a letter he wrote from, from prison. Was it Selma, a letter from Selma? I don't know. But he wrote a, a powerful piece. Nelson Mandela wrote from prison some powerful things. Um, Adolf Hitler wrote Mein Kampf from prison, which I didn't know until I reminded myself of that. Marco Polo wrote his great work called Travels while he was in prison, and, and some spiritual people, too. John Bunyan, you know, Pilgrim's Progress. Your kids probably read it if they're here at Stony Brook. Uh, Pilgrim's Progress was written uh, while in prison. Dietrich Bonhoeffer, uh, an amazing uh, German uh, theologian and pastor uh, guy from uh, the time of the Second World War, wrote uh, from, from prison. Um, and we have Paul going to give us the book of Ephesians, one of three books That were written from prison. So open your Bible to the book of Ephesians and let's get some introduction today. Now, just by way of reminder, the New Testament is composed of how many Gospels? Don't look at the notes, how many Gospels? The Gospels. The Gospels. Four. We're looking for four. The number of fingers that you should have up are four. Um Matthew, Mark, Luke, and John. Now, Luke wrote one other book, the only history book in the New Testament, which is that? Acts. Acts, the book of Acts. So, Luke wrote the Gospel of Luke and the book of uh, history, which is Acts. And then we have a series of, of letters. We call them Epistles. I remember, uh, when, after I was saved, a few months later, it dawned on me what the word epistle meant. Because I kept hearing the epistle to so-and-so, the epistle to so-and-so. All I could think of was a missile going across, you know. The epistle, the letter. So there are, there are a series of letters in our New Testament. What we see as the book of, for example, Colossians is a letter to the church at Colossae. So we see the book of Philemon. It's an actual letter to a man named Philemon. The trick is to figure out is Colossae a person or a place. But they're letters. The only other book in the New Testament that's not a letter is what? Last book of the New Testament. The book of Revelation. So so we have four Gospels, one history book, a bunch of letters, and then the book of Revelation. Now the letters... Are divided into to several groups. Paul, for sure, wrote the most. I believe he wrote fourteen of them. I'll tell you in a minute why why I say it that way. But then there are others. So, so uh, James wrote a book. We know the book of James. We know Peter wrote two books: First and Second Peter. We know John, same one who wrote the Gospel of John. He wrote three epistles: First John, Second John, Third John. He also wrote the book of Revelation. So he wrote five books. So next to Paul, he's the most prolific writer in the New Testament. Have I lost anybody? We're all good? Everybody's following me? So now let's go back to the letters. Oh, and I forgot Jude. He wrote one book. Um, so now we have 14 letters left, if you were looking at the table of contents in, your, in, the, in front of your Bible. And, and they range from the book of Romans... All the way to the book of Titus. And then the next book is Hebrews. There's some question about whether Paul wrote Hebrews. I think he did. It's a wonderful discussion. We'll have it some other time. But I think Hebrews adds to his list of 13 other letters. So the book of Romans is a letter from Paul. Written to the church in, guess? Rome. Rome, Rome. Not hard. First and second Corinthians is a place called Corinth. And he wrote Probably four or five or six letters to them, but we have two of them in our Bible, and 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 so it goes. So when we get to the book of Ephesians, okay, go for it, guys. Where is this letter written to? Ephesus. The church at Ephesus. Now I I, uh, I put a I wonder yep I put a, a map in your whatever she did it in black and white so it's kind of hard to pick. So turn over just for a second while we're we're naming off places and look in. Find the Black Sea up in the top right-hand corner. Do you see that? Uh-huh. And underneath it in bold print, Bithynia and Pontus. Got that? Then a the little to the left is the word Asia. You stand with me? Mm-hmm. All right, now come down and left of that, and you're going to see cities called Pergama, and then Smyrna, and then Ephesus. You see Ephesus? Mm-hmm. So Ephesus is on the coastline there. That is the place that Paul is addressing this letter, to the church at Ephesus. Now, Paul's letters are important. He wrote them at different times. How many missionary journeys did Paul have? Anybody care to guess? It it probably is four. We count the last one as his fourth typically studied in the book of Acts would be three and then we don't have the rest of the story so that would be the fourth journey um, he would write while he was on a journey to a church that he had visited before to encourage or to support or or to get after him about something um, and and in 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 some cases he wrote to individuals he wrote two letters to Timothy one letter to Titus one letter to Philemon um, and then he wrote to the so the church is scattered. That's what the book of Hebrews is all about. So, so while he is moving around, doing his missionary work, he is writing letters. At some point, he's going to find himself in prison and he's going to write our book. So let's take a little look at Paul. Who is the one who's, who's doing the writing here? He was, he was born somewhere between 4 and 5 BC. In Turkey, Cilicia is the name of the area. You and I would understand it to be in, in Turkey. And he died in Rome, somewhere around 66, 67 uh, AD. So he's, he's, he's 70, 71 years old when, when he is um, persecuted and murdered uh, at the end of his life. He first appears in the book of Acts. Now, if the book of Acts is a history book, and it's the history book of the early church, it might be interesting to know where does Paul start in that story so turn to Acts chapter eight, and let's get a first peek at him. Acts chapter eight. Um, and and the scripture's gonna say that a great persecution broke out. So the church has been established, Jesus has gone back up into heaven, the disciples are, are the disciples and the apostles are all clustered in Jerusalem. They're supposed to go out into all the world, but they haven't moved yet. They're they're panicky. And and it says that a great persecution broke out. Now, when the great persecution broke out, guess what happened? They had to scatter. So while God told them to take the gospel and go, their fear didn't move until he brought persecution on the church. And once persecution came on the church, they all hauled out and went to various parts of the world. Parentheses here a moment. Isn't it interesting how that often has to do with our lives? We don't do anything until God brings a little something in our life. A little, a little, a little, mm, a little, a little goad, a little, mm. Uh, maybe the next level of our spiritual life. We we know we ought to be doing whatever the spiritual discipline is, but we're a little on the lazy side and not quite getting to it. And then, lo and behold, something happens in our lives that grabs our attention. Very often, it's something negative. And then we go, oh, no. and, and it moves us to that next level, to the next place, to the next season. Well, that's exactly what's happening here. The church is having a gayo time in, in Jerusalem. I mean, Paul, Peter preaches one day, 3,000 get saved, another day, 5,000 get saved. The church is being you know, added to every single day. It's growing like whatever. Everything's wonderful. And yet they're not doing what they're supposed to be doing in spreading the gospel, and so he brings persecution. And it says that godly men uh, had buried Stephen. Stephen was one of the leaders in the church and, and mourned for him, verse 2. Verse 3, but Saul began to destroy the church. He was going from house to house. He dragged off both men and women, and and he put him in prison. That's Saul. Saul is Paul. His name is going to get changed. Uh, but his, his first... Uh, Real appearance on the scene <clears throat> happens because he's part of this great persecution. Now um, we get lots of details about Paul's life, but they're in various places. So we get a bunch of the details about his life in Philem, or excuse me in Philippians. Go to the book of Philippians chapter 3. This is a Bible study, so we turn in our Bible. If you're using an electronic version, that's cheating, but it's okay. (laughs) Chapter 3, verses 5 and 6, he gives us a little heads up. He says um, in the middle of verse uh, 4, if someone thinks they have reasons to put confidence in the flesh, I have a lot more. If you want to boast, I'll boast. Your spiritual pedigree is what he's referring to. I, I was circumcised on the eighth day of the people of Israel, I'm a Jew, of the tribe of Benjamin, a Hebrew of Hebrews. If you want to talk about whether or not you're in the clan, you betcha I am. Now let's go to the next level and talk about my my academic, my spiritual academic uh, pedigree. In regard to the law, I'm a Pharisee. Now a Pharisee in our world is a negative term. We mean it to mean someone who um, who is two-faced, you know, presents one one way and yet behind the scenes is something else in 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 the time of jesus the pharisees were a very spiritual group of people now they were misplaced in their emphasis they were wholly and totally focused on the externals look at me aren't i a great believer but nonetheless they were a very learned group of people so when he says i'm a pharisee he means i am a bible student and as for zeal Yes, I persecuted the church. As for righteousness based on the law, I am faultless. This is a this is a cream of the crop kind of guy. If you took the book of Acts, that history book I talked about, and started reading just in chapter 9, which is where Paul gets saved, he gets saved in a, in a remarkable fashion. He gets knocked off his horse on the way to Damascus. God gets his attention, causes him to be blind and all kinds of other things, just to get his attention, so he can turn him from being the persecutor of the early church to the man who's going to be the the substance of the writer of the writings of of our Bible. So, from chapter nine in the book of Acts through to the end of the book of Acts, are stories of him, where he went, those three missionary journeys. He went from place to place to place, sharing the gospel, establishing churches, and 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 and, and if you looked at that map again, just for a second. That whole area uh, of of what is now Turkey and then over into what's labeled as Acacia, which would be Greece, he is establishing churches. See if you can find um, where the letter of 1st and 2nd Thessalonians went. See if you can find that spot. Did you see it? Is it in Turkey or in Greece. It's in Greece go look at the the ladder the or not the ladder the top part of Greece you mm-hmm. see it There's Thessalonica it's hard on your little whatever. go down that road and you'll see Corinth mm-hmm. so there's where he he established a church. go over into Asia and and you can look around um let me see uh, blah, 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 blah. so probably let's do this notice where. You see Smyrna just above uh, Ephesus, when, and right above that is Pergamum, and Thyatira over to the right, and Sardis, and Philadelphia, and Laodicea. What do you recognize about those places? Yep, that was Revelation. Yeah, that's the letters mm-hmm. that were addressed in the first, in uh, chapters two, three, and what four. Of revelation uh, of the letters to the churches of where Paul was, so you can see that Paul is doing a massive amount of ministry as he traveled, as he established churches in all these cities. Um, Now, I I threw in a timeline for his life because because Paul is such a, a central figure in this book. I want you to I want you to come to know him just a little bit. You can read some of the, the other comments that he writes about himself in Galatians 1 and 2. But look at the timeline on your notes. So we, we see that he was born in Tarsus. Uh, Tarsus is on the, our, our map. It's right under Cilicia. It's under the L of Cilicia over on the right-hand side of, of, uh, of uh, what would be Turkey. He, uh, he was a Roman citizen by birthright. Now he's a Jew. He calls himself a Hebrew of Hebrews but some for some reason he got a, he got a citizenship. I don't know if that's because of what his father did for a living, very likely. Uh sometimes you could buy citizenships, sometimes Rome would extend them to you because of your key uh you know elements of being a part of that culture or that that commerce. But he is he is a Roman citizen and he is a Jew. Now he studies in a, a school called the School of Gamaliel. Back then they didn't have schools like we have. You were all homeschooled, if you got any training at all. But the very brightest among the students would go to a a location, a city, and sit at the feet, literally, uh, of of a of a learned person. And and one of the uh, esteemed learned people of that time was a was a teacher by the name of Gamaliel, and Paul studied at the feet of Gamaliel. Acts tells us tells us that. Now, why is that important? It tells us something about how bright Paul is. This is not an average guy. And just reading the New Testament, if you were not a believer, you just approached it as a piece of literature. If you read the book of Romans, for example, just as a piece of literature, the, the verbiage, the the use of, of the language is unbelievable. The man is extraordinarily bright. <laughs> Now, he says in, in Philippians there that he was a Pharisee. He became a Pharisee, studied the Old Testament enough till he could become that by about 31 AD. He's at Stephen's uh, stoning. The Bible says in, in Acts 7 that he held the coats. So Paul is the man standing on the, on the periphery with all the coats of everyone that was picking up stones and killing uh, Stephen in, in Acts chapter 7. He, he was endorsing it as the great persecutor of the church. He physically is present when Stephen is stoned, and he's holding the coats. Then, um, of course, I mentioned that in, in Acts chapter 9, he has his great uh, conversion. By the way, there's a typo. It's Acts 9.3, 9-3, not 9.30. He ends up in, in Arabia in a private session with the Lord, and he's, he's there for a period of time. He ends up going into the city of Damascus and and ultimately gets into Jerusalem. Um, uh, Peter and others uh, put their arm around him and allow him to come into the, to the small group of believers, the leadership there. And eventually he goes back to Tarshish, his hometown, kind of as a safety sort of thing. Now, he is going to get he's going to get called out by the the church there in Antioch to become with Barnabas the first missionary sent out and they do their first missionary journey and it's hard on our little map but but you can trace where he went on his first missionary journey and you can see which churches he established and and so on then there's a second missionary journey he doesn't go with Barnabas he goes with Silas the second time and he goes back to some of the same places and then adds some things to that, to that wandering, and then a third missionary journey as well. Somewhere at the end of the third missionary journey, and we pick it up at the last chapters of the book of Acts, Paul is, is going to be arrested, and he is going to be sent to Caesarea. So Caesarea is on, is on the seaside of, of Israel. If you've ever, ever been to Israel and you land in Tel Aviv, and you head to the water. You're heading towards the Mediterranean. You're, you're just you're just south of Caesarea. It was a major uh, city por- or major harbor and a major port city. And and he was arrested and sent to Caesarea and imprisoned there for a couple of years. They never put him on trial. He just he he met before a guy by the name of Felix and and then a guy by the name of Festus and 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 they're questioning him and and so on. Uh, the, the prison experience was not horrible at that point, but he obviously is not allowed to go, he's not allowed to be free, etc., etc. But at that point, at, at some point, when they're kind of winding it up like maybe we'll have an actual trial, he reminds them that he's a Roman citizen. And as a Roman citizen, he is not under the jurisdiction of the Jews. So he, he cannot be tried by them. So it's like his trump card. It's like your passport when you're traveling in foreign countries you're about to be arrested for something, you pull out your American passport. Uh, I tell you what, I, I treasured that. I tuck it in little places where it can't be, you know, whatever. You're not messing with my passport. That is very, very important. I remember um, a couple of times traveling, they want my passport at the hotel. Mmm, not getting my passport. No, 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 no. That's my get-out-of-jail-free card kind of thing. Well, in, in that day, you, you pulled out your... Well, I am a own citizen, and what that meant is there were certain rights... Afforded him that were not rights under other cultures or under other, uh, uh you know, nations or countries. And so suddenly the, 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 the non trial trial in Caesarea has to cease and he has to be transported to Rome for a, for a real trial. So you can see that he is going to get in Rome about 61, uh, uh, AD. Now about 61 AD, he's going to, he's going to have two years of imprisonment. We're going to call it house arrest. It's not that bad. Um, it's not in a in a prison. It's not in a jail. Uh, his friends are able to bring him his meals. He has access to all of his friends. They come and go. He has people that come and listen, and he teaches. The church at Rome is established at that time, and it's beginning to flourish. Things are going well during that house arrest. And at some point, he gets let free during that time, he does what we call the fourth missionary journey. We're not exactly sure where he goes. The book of Acts just stops. It doesn't tell us all the details. And at some point, he is rearrested, brought back to Rome, and this time, he's actually thrown into prison. If you've been to Rome and gone to the Mamertine prison, that's exactly where he was. And it's a hellhole. It's a, a wide spot in the, in the ground. It's horrible. It's terrible and that 's where he is going to end his fate, so that 's the apostle Paul, extremely bright, extremely passionate, extremely knowledgeable, out of all the uh, of all the apostles and all of those who wrote, thinking of Peter, thinking of John, thinking of james, thinking of jude jude is is jesus 's half brother Paul is by far the the more articulate the the deeper thinker, the, the passionate one of the bunch. So it's not by accident that he's going to get the assignment to write the bulk of the New Testament. Now, many of us, when, when we read our Bible, we, we read it like it was one continuous story by some guy we don't know. We, we don't stop to think about the setting and who and why and what was he saying and is he any different than the other guy? So And and what happens when a language gets translated, it gets kind of leveled out. Now, if we all read Greek, and we read the Greek that Peter uses to write 1 and 2 Peter, it's pretty basic. It's, see John run. John ran uphill. When Paul writes, the Apostle John, in a flurry of the moment, escaped and, and ran quickly, up an incline of about 45 degrees. Bla, la, 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 la. Now that's hard for us to get when we're, when we're reading it in English. But the, the, the language of First and Second Peter is far more cut and dried. And in fact, the language in, in most of the other letters that Paul writes is short and direct and to the point. When he writes to the Corinthians, in my own devotions, I happen to be in Second Corinthians right now. When he writes to the Corinthians, it's boom, 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 boom. Stop it. Start it. Don't do that anymore. I'm tired of telling you. I ain't kidding. Quit it. When we get into the book of Ephesians, it's not like that at all. This is a very bright, passionate, smart theologian. And this book of of, of, of Ephesians is the grandest of all of his writings. I don't want you to just, Ephesians, Galatians, it's not like that. Now, why, why did he write this book? Most of the New Testament writings are writings that have a specific issue. So, for example, 1 Corinthians. He got word that there was somebody in the church of Corinth who was, was sleeping with his mother. He thought that was bad. In our culture, <laughs> not so bad. But in his culture, bad. I'm being funny. Please know that. <laughs> and other kinds of sexual immorality. And when he writes to the Corinthians, he's taking a baseball bat to their heads. He is addressing an issue of their inability to, to face and deal with spiritual issues particularly those having to do with sexual immorality. When he wrote to the Galatians, you should have got this, or our little study of the book of Galatians, he was, he was going after them about letting Judaizers in to try to drag them back to, to, to making their life hinging on keeping the law. When he wrote to Timothy, first and second Timothy, or even to Titus, he was writing to young preacher boys. These were young men that he had dropped in a, in a setting for them to pastor one of those new churches. And he was encouraging them as young pastors. Let me tell you about this. Don't, don't no mess with that. Don't worry about this. one point he said, don't, don't let them get after you about being so young. So it's a pastoral, personal letter. When he wrote the letter to Philemon, he, w- he sent it with the, a guy by the name of Tychius, who actually transported the book of Ephesians as well, and, he, and, and the, the punchline of the letter is there's a man by the name of Onesimus there who was a runaway slave who had made his way to Rome and, and gotten gloriously saved. And now Paul says, nope, you've got to go back to Philemon and make it right. It's a personal letter about forgiveness and receiving back this, this slave. So So much of his letters are either to a church, there's an issue, or to a person, there's something he wants to talk about. Specifically, the book of Ephesians is the exception. The book of Ephesians is not a letter to the church at Ephesus ragging on them for something. Nor is it a pastoral, practical, um, you know, he gets practical in the second half of the book, but, but it's, nor is it a very do this, don't do that kind of, kind of book. Instead, he wants to stop he wants to say, wait a minute, everybody lift your head up a minute. It's kind of like when a teacher goes, all eyes, may I see your eyes? Hey, students, may I see your eyes? Everybody's eyes right here. You know, it's one of those. It's I've really got to share with you some of the grander themes associated with becoming a believer in Jesus Christ. So so Ephesians is not a written response to something. It's more of a, a, a flowing out of him. And, and he and it doesn't read like a letter if you read philippians or or, or even colossians they read like a letter dear church at colossae uh, grace to you that's good now let's get to the issue da da da, da. now let me give you some practical applications of that da, da da and the end of it says love and kisses paul ephesians does not read like a letter it almost reads like a poem or a hymn that it's a creative, dynamic expression of what's in his soul, and he wants to pass that on to, to his readers. Um, he is in, in, in revealing, if you will, the riches of divine mysteries, and, he, and he's very focused on what I'll call the grander themes. Um, now, the letter was carried by a guy by the name of Tychus. Tychius, rather. Um, he is referred to in Ephesians 6 as a as a faithful minister in the Lord. So while he's in Rome, there are people coming and going, including people that have leadership in the early church. And one of them is this guy known as Tychius. And, and he is going to take three letters. He's going to take the letter of Ephesians back to the church at Ephesus He's going to take the, the, the book of Colossians. It's a letter to the church at Colossae. And he's going to take that, that letter to Philemon, who was the owner of that slave. Now, Onesimus is going to go with them, and they're going to travel to Asia Minor. It would have taken, you know, weeks. And and in his possession is a literal scroll. So, so don't think email. It didn't go bleep, 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 and they got it. He, by... By either his own hand, and he tells you when he r- writes in his own hand. Generally, he dictated to, a, to a, a, someone called an amanuensis, a secretary. So Paul's sitting in house arrest, dictating these letters. Someone's writing them out on papyrus or a scroll. Tychius is going to put them in his backpack, uh, backpack and he's going to make a trip and deliver them to the churches that, that he's supposed to, or to the person. And so those two years that he spent in Caesarea without a trial, he then goes to Rome, spends another two years under house arrest there, and ultimately is set free for a period of time, and then spends the last months or maybe a year or so in the Mamertine prison. So that's how the letter, you know, gets there. Uh, We've already stated it was about 62 A.D. Ephesus, let me tell you about the city of Ephesus. Ephesus was known then as one of the seven wonders of the ancient world. This is a big deal city. Lots of the other places where, where we hear about them, they're just wide spots on the road. Almost all of them are on a, on a, on a, a commerce road. A, there's a road where travel happens for, for selling things. But Ephesus is a seaport. So when you get home or in the back of your famous Bible or go online, you can see an actual map of Asia Minor and you can see where Ephesus was. It was a seaport, a major seaport, not not a small one, a large one. And it was, it was uh, considered, as I said, one of the, the seven wonders of the ancient world. One of the reasons it was considered that was its commerce, lots of buying and selling, lots of lots of raw materials going out, lots of products coming in and so on. But the other reason it was such a famous city was it had high culture, and part of that culture was the temple of Artemis. Now, uh, Artemis uh, is the uh, is the Greek name of it. Diana is the Roman name. It was the goddess of fertility. So if you if you either were feeling that direction or were hoping to become pregnant or had activities in that direction. It all centered around this temple. So while it's a great city for commerce, it's known in in, it had a library, a a massive library and some other things, but it also had this major temple. And and as the fertility god, she was very popular among the people. Now Paul, when he's on his second missionary journey, he visits Ephesus for a little short period of time. But on his third missionary journey, he goes there and he actually stays three full years. This is the longest he's in one place. He gets to know the Ephesians in a way that he doesn't know any other of his churches. You spend three years every day talking, fellowshipping, being with people. After a while, you have a a relationship with them and them with he. So he's preaching, he's teaching on an ongoing basis in people's homes, in small group meetings, and when they gathered as as a large church. So, um... You may find a couple of other people that are associated with Paul in this church at Ephesus. One, one couple is Priscilla and Aquila. You remember those names? Anybody? Priscilla and Aquila. What fascinates me is that when they're mentioned, Priscilla's name, at least four of the times, is, is said before her husband's name. And if you remember when we talked about uh, Martha, Mary and her brother Lazarus, whose name generally comes out first, Martha. Which which conveys that it, that she was probably the oldest and 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 the most significant most significant of of the siblings. Similarly, here Priscilla either is a very wealthy woman, so Aquila married into money, and that's why her name gets mentioned first, or she may have had a more key ministry uh, position and job. And we often talk about women in ministry and women in the New Testament and what roles they have. She's a fascinating person to do a little study on if that fascinates you. So her and her husband were, were there in Ephesus. They traveled there from the city of Corinth. Paul calls him his co-workers which is a tremendous uh, statement of, of, uh, of uh, what you know respect. We, we call co-workers anybody we work with whether we like them we don't like them they work in the mail room and you know we're, we're co-workers um, but when, when Paul's using that term what he's saying is we're on a, we're on a level playing field here we are, we're, we, are, we are high mucky mucks in this business of ministry so they were, they were preachers and teachers they were tent makers Paul made his living being a tent maker he makes a big deal about telling his churches I do not rely on you for my, for my substance I, I don't need you to pay my bills uh, I'm fascinated with Harry and and uh, and uh, what's her name, Meghan. Meghan that's it, Harry and Meghan. I love anything having to do with the royal family. Anyway, having lived in England for so long, but but Harry fascinates me. And, and this whole thing about I want out, but not really out, but kind of mostly out. But send money. I I, I laugh about that. <laughs> you know, they're trying to figure out I want out, but could you? You know, the British government supports the the royal family. They have their own sources of income too, but. It cracks me up that I went out, but I don't know. Big meeting yesterday to decide, you know, how much money he gets or doesn't get. And his dad made a big statement about, I can't support him forever, you know, so anyway. <laughs> Paul makes a big deal about saying, I, I don't need the churches to support me. I make tents for a living. I make tents, I sell tents, I have uh, an income. Priscilla and Aquila were like that as well. And then a guy by the name of Apollos. We, we don't know very much about him. He shows up a couple of times in our Bible uh, he is an early convert there in Ephesus uh, and was discipled by Priscilla and Aquila. Uh, he, he understood some things clearly and a lot of things not so clearly. But apparently he was a very, very bright guy. And some scholars attribute the book of Hebrews to him. I don't think it's true, but some do. So what are we going to find in the book of Ephesus? Or Ephesians, rather. Well, you're going um, to find a uh a, 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 a grand theme that could be boiled down to three words. And there's a little book by Watchman Nee, N-E-E. You ought to go on, online and buy it. It'll take you 45 minutes to read it. Well, maybe an hour and a half, but it's a very small little uh, paperback. And the title of the book is, is the three words that encapsulate the theme uh, or, or the unfolding of the book of, of Ephesians. The book is called Sit, Walk, Stand by Watchman Nee. And really those three words, sit, then walk, then stand, capture the, the unfolding of the book of, 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 of Ephesians. And and if you have your Bible open, let's go back to Ephesians chapter 1 now. All that was a grand introduction. And now we're going to spend an hour and a half on the first... No, just kidding. But look at chapter 1 and verse number 3. We're going to get into chapter 1 in some detail next week. But it says, grace... uh, Excuse me, verse 3. Praise be to the God and Father of our Lord Jesus Christ, who has blessed us in heavenly realms with every spiritual blessing in Christ. He's going to make a case that everything that flows out of the believer comes from their position in Christ. In Christ, I have this. In Christ, I know this. In Christ, I am assured of this. In Christ, I I can stand on these principles. I am in Christ. I have tucked myself into him i like a kid tucks themselves into a to their parents when they are fearful we tuck ourselves we we sit in christ and that and that and that position gives us comfort and encouragement and direction and purpose so sit in christ and then we walk once we're so comfortable in who we are and what we are and what we're supposed to be doing we look at chapter 4 and verse number 1 And we get this concept of walking. He says, as a prisoner for the Lord then, I urge you to live, and many of your translations say walk, to walk a life worthy of the calling you have received. Sit, then walk. Once you have the principles of who you are and why you are in Christ and what your purpose is and who you're supposed to impact with your life, then you're ready to start living it out. And you're going to live it in a way that's worthy of the calling you have received. Sometimes when I'm flipping through through Facebook, and don't not friend me because of this, but (laughs) I will flip through and I will go, is that worthy? Is that worthy? Is that worthy? On my own accounts as well. See, the standard for a believer is pretty high. It's supposed to be worthy of the calling. The choices we make in life, the things we do, the activities we participate in, the people we hang with. It's supposed to be worthy of a pretty high calling. And then the third word, then we stand. Look at chapter 6. He says, you know, having having done everything to to, to put on the armor of God... To, to deal with struggles and, and the attacks of Satan. And in verse number 14, he said, when you've done all those things, you put on the full armor of God, verse 13, so that when the day of evil comes, you may be able to stand your ground. And after you've done everything to stand, stand firm then. So sit, walk, and then stand. Stand for what you know to be true. Stand for God. Be ready to give an answer. Don't, don't hide in the background. So sit, walk, stand. Now the book itself can get divided into two sections. Chapters 1, 2, and 3 are dealing with these very lofty theological truths. Now don't think dry. Don't think, oh, you know, we're going to talk about the consubstantiation and transubstantiation of the New Testament. It's not dry stuff, but it is lofty. Things like grace. And spiritual adoption. And the sovereignty of God. How God made us alive. What we're supposed to do with that life. All that is part of those first three chapters. Then we get into a, a much more practical section. Chapters 4, 5, and 6. And he's going to talk about, in light of that, how do you walk? How do you live? Four, chapter 4, verse 1, it says, live it in your notes. It's of typo. Four, one." How to walk in accordance with that calling. And then if you, if you want to see the underpinning for the whole book of Ephesians, it's the concept that we as a, as, as a group, as a people group, the church at Ephesus specifically and now the church at large is to live as a community. There is to be unity. Now unity doesn't mean we agree on every point. If you and I got together and we had a conversation about current day politics, I'm in a suspicion, in a room like us, there would be differing opinions. Okay. But there should be a sense of unification as believers. We should be able to have conversations, talk about it, and walk out of the room with nothing stuck in in our back. Pick a theological topic. We should be able to do the same thing. Whether we believe in in uh, the premillennial return of Christ, or the postmillennial before the tribulation, after the tribulation, we should be able to be in a room of believers and have a conversation about the return of Christ without screaming, hollering, breaking fellowship, and pick a, a boatload of other topics. Is is uh, is uh, what would be another one? How you baptize? Whether you get sprinkled with a few drops of water or dunked. Are we going to have a discussion about that? Good. Can that discussion be substantive? Yes. Should you have a position, a biblical position, an evidence of your position? Sure. But at the end of the day, if the person sitting across from you has a differing perspective, can we not deal in unity and say, "Mm, Celine, I'm not quite with you on that one. Let Let's have another discussion. I'll do a little more reading, you do a little more reading, or I'm just going to agree to disagree you You had a brilliant really thoughtful approach and and I have one, and we're just going to disagree on it because it's not it's not a big deal. Now there are some big deals. we're not doing that over is Jesus jesus we're not, we're, not, we're, not, we're, not, we're not saying there's all roads to heaven. there are not all roads to heaven. John chapter one, you know. John chapter 14. When you have a conversation with someone of another faith and they go, well, you know, you know, it's all going to come together at the end. Mm. No. Now, you don't have to be obnoxious. You don't have to be in their face. You can be loving and kind and have a conversation. But I'm saying, in the pursuit of unity, it doesn't mean everything gets washed out. It just means we can have... Reasonable, thoughtful conversations, but as believers, there is a sense of unity. When, when a when a believer or a church gets in trouble, a, a pastor does a nana. We're we're not we're not we're we're called to not go. Oh well, I always knew he was so you know I'm not surprised. Are you kidding? That's a member of our family. We need to pray for them and pray for their church, pray for their whatever. Well, you know, I always thought they were a little whatever done. No. We take no delight when there's a failure or a hurt in someone else. Unity is the... Uh, and if you flip through this book, you can look at it. Look at chapter 2, verse 14. He, he evokes his he plan for them as two different groups, the Jews and the Gentiles, for he himself is our peace, who has made the two groups, the Jews and the Gentiles, one. And he's destroyed the barrier, the dividing wall of hostility. He doesn't want the Jews and Gentiles in the church at Ephesus to be screaming and hollering at each other. He wants that wall broken down. Look at chapter 4 in verse numbers uh, 3 and 4. He's now talking about that there is one Lord and one faith and one baptism. It's interesting, the night I agreed to get baptized, the pastor happened to be preaching on, on this actual verse, and I remember it very clearly. If there was one Lord and one faith, then yeah, baptism is kind of important and I ought to get baptized. You know, I was baptized as a child in the Catholic Church, but I had no faith associated with it. It was not an expression of what had happened in my heart. Baptism, biblical baptism, is an outward sign of what happened in your heart. So I'll put a little plug in there. If you are a believer in Jesus Christ, there's a time and a place when you put your, your faith and trust in him, repented of your sins and made him Lord of your life. Then from that moment forward, there should have been a baptism. You say, well, I don't know. It's a little showy. I know. That's exactly why I resisted it. Because in my Catholic background, everything was a show. Everything was external. And suddenly I had something in my heart that was real. And I knew it was real. And so I didn't want to get involved in a uh, showy thing. But I'm telling you, the Bible teaches it as a first step of obedience. But he says we got one Lord, one faith, one baptism. He repeats that one body concept later in that chapter. Look at verse 25. He says, therefore, each of you must put off falsehood, speak, speak truthfully to your neighbor, for we are all members of one body, the body of Christ. In chapter 5, verse 21, he says we're, we're to submit to one another out of reference, you and me submitting mutually to each other. And then in chapter 6, he goes after relationships. He goes, children and parents, there needs to be unity. He says, husbands and wives, there needs to be unity. He talks about slaves and masters, there needs to be unity. So underpinning this whole book, while the sit, walk, stand motif works, is this concept of, can't we get together? Now, that's a pretty academic presentation. You go, that's very interesting, Sherry, thank you, that's very helpful, and you walk out of here. No, 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 I got to so walk. I think every time we study the Bible, there should be a so what. And, and my so what is back in chapter 1. So look at chapter 1. In fact, it's the very first verse. Paul, all right, we got him down, an apostle of Christ Jesus, by the will of God, to God's holy people in Ephesus, the faithful in Christ Jesus. How does he refer to the believers in Ephesus. He uses two terms. My my translation, I'm using the NIV, says holy people. Uh, if you're in a King James or a New King James, it probably says saints. Does it say saints? Yeah. Now again, having been raised in the Catholic Church, only saints I knew were dead. And, you know, they were up on walls and we had little splinters of their bones around. And... <laughs> That is not the definition of the biblical word saint. The biblical... I, you're laughing, Renee. I'm in a, a suspicion you have a similar background. No, I do like No, you don't? Okay. <laughs> sure, sure enjoying it, though. Anyway. Catholics make their great, greatest believers in Jesus Christ. I'm telling you. We're great once we get it. Anyway. Um, the word saint just means holy ones. Now, not holy like holier than thou. You know, not not superficial, but it means, it. the word means to be sanctified, and the word sanctification just means set aside. So out of all the water bottles in my refrigerator, I chose this one. This is the holy uh, water bottle, because I set it aside. It has a specific use, and I set it aside. It's not just one of the rest of them. It, it's been set aside. So when we use the word saint there, it's the concept that a living person, not a dead person, is consecrated to God, set aside for some holy use. Have you looked at yourself that way lately? That God reached down out of the sea of humanity in the 21st century and said, John the Blackman, I am making you a saint. Not in the Not in the use of somehow better than the rest of us, but in the sense that I have a goal, a plan, a purpose, I have ideas about how I want you spending your life. Now, a week or so ago, I gave you a lesson and I showed you this little pad. You remember this? Yeah. So, does anybody remember the number we started on? Yours was 14, I think. It was 15, I think. 4,015. Well, as of this morning, down to 4,006. By the time I'm with you next week, I'll be in the 3,000s. These are days left of an average person who lives to be the average length. What was that, 81 years? 81. And I'm 71. I had 11 years times 365 days. We came up with a number. Is that not a perspective giver? That by the time we're together next week, I'm going to be in the 3,000s? But I'm a saint, I was chosen. I was set aside. God has a plan for my life. Am I living like that? Or am I just going through all my days? Another day, another week, packed another lunch, drove the kids to school, planned another dinner, went shopping. Or do I I understand that sense of the word saints? And then later in that same verse, he reiterates the concept of the holy people. He calls them the faithful. Now, I don't know about you, but I I am not that faithful. I am like this in my walk. I am. I have good seasons and not so good seasons. I have a day when I just I could I could charge hell with a squirt gun and win. <laughs> <laughs> so but I have other days that. I don't invite Christ to be a part of much of my day. I get distracted easy. I am consumed with self. I suspicion I'm not the only one that these are true statements about. But God looks at me and and calls me faithful in the sense of the expectation that I remain faithful, firm, consistent, deliberate, What I believe should make a difference in how I live. And when it does, I'm faithful. So, my question to all of you today is how are you doing? As we get started in the book of of Ephesians, holy, set aside, saints, where the expectation is faithfulness, how are we doing? I'll leave you to that to answer yourself. Let's pray. Lord Jesus, I, uh, I am grateful for the book of Ephesians and the incredible focus on sitting in truths in you, learning to walk and then able to stand. Help us to understand what you were using Paul to say to the church at Ephesus and, and say it to us so we could live up to this expectation of being saints who are faithful. I pray this in Jesus' name. Amen. Amen. Now before you move, I, I want to say something a little on the serious side. I felt compelled this morning, so I want to, I want to share it. You know, it's possible that somebody's sitting here, you, you're coming to, to Bible study, and you came maybe out of an interest your kid is at Stony Brook and they're learning a lot of bible and it seemed like a good thing or maybe a friend brought you but if i were to if i were to get kind of personal with you and look you right in the eyeball and and ask the question is there a time and a place when you personally re- returned the 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 gaze of christ by responding and putting your faith and your trust and your commitment in Him as your personal Lord and Savior. If you would look at me and say, well, no, Sherry, I was raised this, went to church there, been going to this, you know, I hit, I hit my church every week, but if you can't answer that question with a definitive yes, if you don't know for certain that if, if something tragic happened today or the Lord were to return, that you would spend all eternity in heaven with Christ, Please don't keep going through the motions. I'm in my office. After Bible study, everybody's gone. Nobody will know. Go sneak over to the office and say, I'd like to spend a moment with Sherry and come in and let me help you get to a place where you can answer that question with an unequivocal yes. Because that's the cry of my heart. That no one would come and hear all about Ephesians but not know about our Savior. So please don't go home. Don't go get in your car without a sense of, of assurance because it's a small and, and easy and, 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 and free moment to, to get you there. All right, you're dismissed.